Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film Squawk. Emma. Directed by Autumn DeWilde. 2020. In 19th century England, an affluent young busybody schemes to make an advantageous match for a friend, no matter the consequences. Greetings from our homes to yours. Whether you're new to Crow Talk or a seasoned listener, you're joining us during a singular time in 21st century history. As you're critically aware, coronavirus has rerouted normal life, tipping everything expected on its head. This podcast is no exception. Instead of recording Season 3 episodes from our studio at Western Washington University, we will be podcasting from our couches and remote workstations. We will use headphones with tiny microphones as dogs bark outside and our partners quietly bring us tea. Just as the quality of our production must shift, so has the dynamic of film viewing. So... Welcome to our Season 3 series, Streaming in the Time of COVID, where we will reflect on the experience of viewing, share yays and nays, squawk our opinions, and consider takeaways. Things we want to remember moving forward about this film, or film in general. We are back. We back. We back. (laughs) That was like so long. So long. Yeah. It's just a weird time, isn't it, everyone? Definitely a bizarre time. But for those of you who are joining us for the very first time, I'm Rochelle Robinson. I'm Stacey Reynolds. I'm Cassidy Brooks. And gracing us with her presence today is an extra special guest, expert and lover of all things Austin, Talking to Crow's co-owner, writer, and actress extraordinaire, Laura Baker. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me today to nerd out about Austin. (laughs) Whoa, let's nerd out. You three nerd out. I shall remain as I am. (laughs) A distant appreciator. (laughs) Emma, period. We obviously intended to see this film in a theater. Uh, We had everything planned for this this season, this third season of, of Crow Talk. But in the wake of COVID-19, we're pretty excited about the opportunity Zencaster has provided for fledgling podcasts like ours to still be able to meet and discuss film and connect and grow and sharpen. But before we dive into DeWild's Emma, I'd love to give our listeners a glimpse into all of your unexpected viewing experience with Emma. Um, not in a theater, probably at home. How did you each end up viewing Emma? I definitely missed the theater experience yeah. for sure. It's hard um, because theater equals special and exciting and it's dark and you're in a different place and there are no distractions at the theater. So, I mean, I missed the theater for sure, but given the circumstances, it was so wonderful to have access to that that new film since it was so early on in like the quarantine time it did feel like a delicious pink slice of cake like Mm -hmm. it was really exciting at that point in the quarantine I think at this point maybe I would be a little more lackluster you know like ugh, everything has to be at home now and that's (laughs) a pity but at that point (laughs) that was very awesome in that accent too right (laughs) of course like oh mrs elton over here hello and samantha she keeps coming out yeah it was fun to to uh because i i watched it and then watched it again the next day and so that was kind of nice to be able to rewatch or like different parts that i i wanted to sort of clarify or or just enjoy again um that was kind of cool not having to wait 
for it I to wish come out. I would have done that. Like, what a wasted opportunity. It's like when you used to rent movies and you'd like watch it two or three times. If yeah. it was a good one. If it was yeah. a good one. Because it was Pack one it of in. like three movies you had at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I even folded laundry <laughs> while I watched it. And I mean, in a positive way, I was in my space. I felt free. I got to walk around and enjoy and laugh as loud as I wanted to. Now, I, I tend to laugh as loud as I want to in the theater, too, but I don't really walk around. You know, I definitely don't fold laundry. So uh, <laughs> it was a, a unique experience in that way because I had the mindset that this would have been a, a film we viewed in the theater uh, with that huge screen and you know, ultimately, I kind of hope no one there. I love being in the theater alone. Uh, so it wasn't so much that That's I missed. That's the only <laughs> way I picture it. Like when we talk about the movie theater every time in my mind, it's like empty. There's like Cricket. two or three other Just viewers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we know like it's fun to watch with other people. In fact, there's a lot to be said about group viewing and we like to watch films together. But yeah, I... I think the thing I missed the most was just that that huge screen and, and just the being there, um, even if I got to walk around and fold, fold laundry. <laughs> it's kind of distracting at home. Like, I feel like when I watch at home, I'm not as avid of a screener, you know? I'm like, mm-hmm. what's my dog doing? going to walk over here and fold this shirt now. <laughs> A lot of laundry folding. Yeah, I know. Well, I didn't. Fold, I didn't home. actually fold a shirt while watching, but I. I mean, I do feel like my attention was distractible. Totally. I pause totally. a lot when I home view. Like I'll pause and use the restroom, or I'll go get something to drink, or whatever. So I do that anyway, and so that really changes up. I think the experience of just having the control to halt. Or rewind yeah. and like review something, or like I didn't quite catch that line, so now I can mm-hmm. go back and and. I put subtitles on if I have to because um and mm-hmm. uh and being able to get that whereas it's it leaves it a little bit more I think when you see it in the theater it, it's kind of a positive kind of a negative like you you can see it like you can review it at home but it kind of leaves some like almost easter eggs in when you view it again you're like oh I didn't catch that the first time whereas this time you're, you caught everything the first time because you <laughs> could stop it and you could go backwards and you can um sort of overwatch it I think or you missed like Five minute chunks, perhaps, because you were like folding laundry over here. What's out the window? <laughs> I guess folding laundry is not popular, <laughs> like a popular I, activity I while you're viewing laundry. films. Now I know I do that all the time, Rochelle. Like once a week, I do that. I just didn't happen to <laughs> during Emma, but I did. I feel like I did get distracted, though I can't tell you what in the heck I was doing. What in the heck? It, it sounds like the viewing experience itself is like embedded with yays and nays and I wonder then how that may have impacted our our filmic yays and nays um let's start with yays what did you love about this film what would you what aspect of it would lead you to recommend someone else view it to rent it uh, to spend 20 or 15 dollars or whatever the cost is now to view Emma from home for me it was definitely the set and just the production design in general the colors Yeah, like the delicious color palette, even the score, like just the whole mood that the film created is worth a rewatch. It's kind of Wes Anderson-y, I think, you know, it's like a feast for the eyes, like a slice of pink cake, which is interchangeable between Wes and this Autumn DeWild pick. Just so perfect. I think I really appreciated that it felt like uh, I was watching Emma for the first time. 
which I think is hard to do because there's so many iterations of it. And it was finding a unique take on a, what, 100 and 200 year old story, um, 210 years, something like that. And uh, that was that was something unexpected. And I, and I think it had to do, like Cassie said, with the world she created, just the, the pops of color and the music and the, um, just the way she played with all the, the techniques of filmmaking, uh, I think made it a, a, a brand new version of a, of a classic story. Totally. That definitely leads into my yay. I felt that the updates to the source material were really fresh and really accessible to um, a modern audience. And so I think that's a reason to go see it if you're an Emma fan um, or if you're not. It was just, it was really well done. I thought that she played to both audiences really well. My yay is composed of a few different aspects um, woven together, specifically the commitment to friendship that this adaptation embodied paired with, to borrow Casti's word, deliciously wicked Emma. I think that there uh, is much to be said about different likability levels uh, of different Emma iterations over the years. And I found myself um, having a really good time with this, with this Emma. And uh, as far as commitment to friendship goes, I really appreciated seeing that evolve in her relationship with Mr. Knightley to essentially become like a partnership and just how that equanimity was embodied uh, as it carried through them from friendship and and beyond uh, into their relationship as the the story progressed. I really appreciated uh, the attention to detail of friendship uh, in this, in this adaptation. There was so much friendship too. I want to add a yay. And it's like the opening scene with the blue moon. I'm really (laughs) thinking that's good. good. That was a good tease. That was a really good tease. I wonder what that's about. (laughs) It's a yay. It's a reason to rewatch the film. It was like instantly like, yeah, this is directed by a lady and she knows exactly how to like hook her audience. Mm-hmm. So what about Nace? Reasons why viewers might not seek out the wild Emma. I thought it had a little bit of a pacing issue. It like drug a little bit for me. But now that we're here talking about it, I definitely want to watch it again. So it's like, a drop in the pond, nay, for me. I absolutely ha- struggled uh, with the the altered timeline in this adaptation. A- at first, initially, I struggled with it. Having Emma and Knightley recognize their affection in Act 2 instead of Act 3, um, it really threw a wrench uh, into my expectations uh, that in the moment I wasn't excited about. And like you were saying, Cassie, now stepping back, looking in hindsight, I'm, I'm very appreciative. Uh, I think that it, it added something important to the canon. My nay is also that it was a little bit long. I felt myself checking the time for some reason. And I was viewing it with my partner who is not a period piece person. So I don't know if I was picking up on some like anxiety Uh, through him like is he enjoying it oh my gosh this is long like I can do like you know a five-hour miniseries no problem but like can the layman do it he did it he liked it but um yeah so I feel like there could have been opportunities to just tighten it up mine is also kind of a small thing it's um the the, some of the side characters I feel like uh and I think this is probably because it was a a film and not a miniseries just felt really 
almost caricatures of themselves rather than a bit more development or a bit more rounded. Um, you know, the Mr. Elton in particular, I found something, I know he's supposed to be off-putting, but there was something <laughs> a bit like overly off-putting about him, if that makes sense. Even in the beginning when he's supposed to be kind of charming, uh, it just went so quick to caricature uh, that I found that a little, a little bit of a nay. I agree, Laura, in the BBC miniseries, I feel like he was sort of charming and uh, kind, you know, they like played to his heart a little bit at the beginning before. Yeah, I actually didn't dislike him in that one. Yeah, they just had the the space in a whatever it was four or five hours miniseries to, to take the time with the side characters. And but in, you know, two hour film, you got to trim something. <laughs> was it a huge difference between the source material Emma, the book, compared to this and other adaptations, Laura and Stacey, our source material experts? I, I think he is a bit less buffoonish at the beginning because you are kind of seeing it through Emma's perspective. I mean, it's not first person perspective. It's that omniscient kind of narrator. And it's not until people around her start saying like, hey, I think this guy's into you. And she's like, no, it's totally fine um, that he starts to become a bit more uh, aggressive and kind of buffoonish. At first, she's just like, oh, he seems sweet. And so the reader kind of thinks that he's sweet. But I think in the movie, he was very much just... And buffoon is just the word that keeps coming. <laughs> I think Autumn just wanted to get to it. She was like, nope, I want more nightly. Let's yeah. get right to it. And she did. Again, yay, opening scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which you can tell nightly. us about now. <laughs> oh, I can tell it now. Yeah, that's right. I love to spoil it in the first, like, second of the <laughs> Like, welcome to Crow Talk. And I'm like, spoiler! <laughs> Go. Talk about it. Oh, talk I about talk all about the nightly you saw. Like, it's just that she, like, showed his butt immediately. Like, I don't, I can't even think of another film that's really done that. Where it's just like, hey, here's the love interest. You know that right away. <laughs> also, like, check out this crazy move that he does with his shirt. And I know, junk, tucking it into his old britches. I know. I love that he had to like scoop his Oops. into his pants. I spent like ten minutes I'll... googling that shirt tuck method. I was like, historically, did men wear shirts as underwear at the same time? No, they wore it as night shirts. Like they would just take off their pants and go to bed. So yeah, like right. it's long enough yeah. to like hold the boots. And I've never seen that in any period piece. Like Game of Thrones didn't even like dabble on it. They were just like, who cares? Yeah, they were like, here's a but I think that comes back to the idea of DeWilde as the director, because I've seen probably thousands of iterations of women getting dressed, right? Of the mm -hmm. putting the shift that on and then putting the corset on and then putting whatever extra layer and layer. And so to immediately within the first couple of minutes flip it and say, We're gonna watch a man get dressed, particularly mm -hmm. the the love interest man, um, was a really cool way of approaching the their dynamic and just flipping what we would traditionally expect from a period piece. So brilliant. Yeah. And informative. Like <laughs> I was like really excited about that. <laughs> like who knew? So it sounds like even though some liberties were taken and we're definitely viewing this adaptation through a, a female lens, which hasn't been the norm. We had Amy Heckerling helm Clueless in 95. We have a lot Ooh. of other adaptations that were helmed by men. And I'm wondering how this different approach, a little bit of modernity, um, how it measures up to other adaptations that, that you've all watched. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Like, 
It's hard to compare anything to Clueless because it's Clueless. And that was like one of the most formative movies of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. But the miniseries was good too. I am not a huge Austin fan. Surprise, everyone, if you haven't picked up on that yet. But this is what... <gasps> Midsummer, shout Midsummer. Out. But yeah, the BBC miniseries is also really good. I just like this story in general. And BBC miniseries is what I watched as my homework preparing for the film, which I had already seen years ago and didn't realize yet that Emma or that Clueless was an adaptation of Emma. So rewatching that miniseries this time was a lot more fun just because I was drawing parallels between the characters and stuff. And it's just also delicious. I think it really does deliver on all fronts. And it's hard to, like you said, Cassidy, put it against Clueless because Clueless is so nostalgic. But I, I definitely think it's at the top as far as the other adaptations that are out there goes. Um, and I think it's going to really age well, too. Oh, yeah. Like, it'll the other be, ones, I don't think, aged quite as well. It'll be fun to rewatch it. We all should have watched it twice, like Laura. We probably <laughs> all did that with Clueless, like the VHS back in the 90s. We probably all watched it twice after renting it. Did we all watch <laughs> that as a kid? Am I just assuming that we're on oh, the same yeah. page? Oh, yeah. Rochelle, did I you watch it? I watched it later. I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies. So I probably didn't see it until I was almost a graduate from high school. Most movies I didn't start watching until. And why do you think I'm obsessed with them now? (laughs) 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 Because I literally called home hundreds of times to ask to watch movies and I always received a no. So um, yeah, it was definitely a little bit later for me, but it was, I was obviously kind of slow to start in a lot of areas. So it was, it was formative for me too. I love, I love Clueless and it's one to return to, whereas the 1996 Emma is not. <laughs> I had to watch that, or I volunteered to watch that in preparation for this podcast. And it's it's the, it's the adaptation featuring Kate Beckinsale, who I'm I love. I love her so much. She's wonderful, and I like Samantha Morton a lot too. She played Agatha in Minority Report. Anybody? Anybody? Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, it was I did not. I did not appreciate it the same because I despised the Emma portrayal. She was mean. She didn't have this kindness streak that we see so well brought to fruition in Taylor Joy's performance and how she encapsulates Emma. And of course, you know, we with Cher, like she means well and you know she means well. That is just not the case in uh, Beckinsale's uh, iteration of Emma. And I found that it changed my ability to, to enjoy the film. I mean, that's the whole point of Emma is like her growth and how naive she is to her privilege and all of that, you know, and the, the journey through it. Uh, so yeah, to remove that would be so hard to relate to Emma because that is the whole draw. It's like she means so well, but she's just like missing the mark and getting closer and closer as the plot progresses. And it's interesting that you say Beckinsale's went too far in that direction because I feel like a lot of them go too far in trying to make her likable from the beginning. Whereas one of the things I so appreciated about this Emma was I didn't like her at the beginning. And I thought that she was super annoying and super privileged and you got to see the growth and you got to, it's almost it's a weird connection to make. It's kind of like, she's a female Darcy, like Mr. Darcy mm-hmm. from Pride and Prejudice, oh, where yeah. at first you're just like, Oh, he's terrible. He's a <laughs> jerk. 
But then you get to see him grow, and that's why he becomes so lovable at the end. And that's Emma's trajectory, which is very interesting in a woman because that's a whole other like conversation we can have. But how the unlikable, the likable piece. Um, but I, I don't. I feel like Gwyneth Paltrow's and uh, the BBC one. They, I mean, she's like tending the sick, and they're doing all of these <laughs> things to like make her like okay, she's mean, and she like thinks she knows everything, but she's kind, you know, like. So this one, it was nice to to go to see that more complete journey in um, in this Emma. It probably she probably is my favorite Emma. Like if I had to distill it down to a favorite, like one Emma, not the storyline of Emma, but the character of Emma, she's probably my favorite. I would agree. I think that just the growth piece that was really real, and and I think that's what makes it so accessible to a modern audience. Um, she is kind of terrible and then she does the work to be better and that's wonderful and that's not something that's in the book you know i i love how they pulled that out so i might even go as far as to say that this is my favorite emma also those shots of her staring out the window when she's upset about anything it happens a couple of times at the beginning just the fact that that can be added in and couldn't be in the book because it's visual totally yeah she's loyal that was a huge element of of uh taylor joy's performance and just the way it was written uh the character itself she's loyal and that is it's totally missing from beckinsale's 96 like she's cutthroat vicious and it never changes whereas with Taylor Joy, you know, her friendship with Harriet Smith, Mia Goth's character, uh, you know, there is a lot of growth that even just happens in in that relationship, because obviously she is a product of her time, Emma is a product of her time, and she has very high expectations for her friend, but it's also about what she thinks is best and what she deems is valuable versus what her friend may want. So there's a lot of that selfishness that struggle there but when it comes down to it you know she can she can admit she's wrong and she takes responsibility which no other emma i've ever seen does she does it and none others have ever done it with mr knightley in in the field when he's saying that he can go and fix it and she's like no i will go i have to you know like she's the one who has to go and and hash this out with with harriet like i mean yeah her journey of growth in this film is so amazing and I loved the love story with her and Nightly in this film more than any other any other Emma it's my favorite progression of that storyline um speaking of their progression can we talk about the sexy ball the wall the ball the The sexy ball the sexy ball that's exactly exactly what I'm talking about anyway Laura (laughs) something else so did I at first. I was like, was that a prop? <laughs> no, they're uh, they're dance at the ball. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And I like that that Love tension ball. was built a little yeah. earlier on because then you had time in their other interactions to be like, oh, they all love each other. <laughs> <laughs> they both kind of know it, but haven't admitted it. Yeah, I would agree that at first I got confused. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, it's, it's really scary. disorienting. What's happening? But, you know, it's such a great love story. So I love the extra screen time and that build instead of a, a light switch at the end for Emma. 
you know, they all do that too. And it's a little drastic. Like, yeah, this one, I really got invested. Like, I, I don't think I really cared about the love story in any other adaptation. I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. Like she's already got it going on. So that's a nice cherry on top. But in this one, it was like, well, and he was age appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. Like even Laura and I rewatched Clueless shortly after we had all watched Emma and even Paul Rudd. As Josh, I love Paul like, Red. So do I, but he like looks so he's never well, aged because she's like, like 15 and, and, and he just has looked for getting her driver's license. I'm sorry, I'm yelling yeah. over you, but yeah. she is 15 he's and cool. he's in college, and he's yeah. in college. Laura and I kept yeah. talking about that, and we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was always like, yeah, she's 18. Are you no, sure she's she not 18? She's 15 because she's getting her driver's license. But how or do we know? I, th- I thought she'd failed her driver's test again yeah, and again. Maybe. And again. Okay, so and she's again. older. We were not 18. Yeah. I don't think we're she's 18. Like, she's like statutory. I'm pretty sure she, yeah, oh, was no. just messing up all the time. I hope to God that that's I'm the case. I'm so glad we talked about it. It like <sighs> makes me feel so much better because I love Paul Rudd too, but I will stand by the fact that he looked much older than a teenager, even a college boy. Like he looks, and I think it's because he still looks the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't age. In all the other um, adaptations, he's like 30s. He's like 35. Yeah. He, he like, like held 20. her when she was an infant. You know, that, yeah. that dialogue's yeah. directly in the films. It's like, think, what? Yeah. He just yeah. like imprinted on her when she was young. Yeah, because he says something about being older and she's like, well, maybe when I was a kid, but I would have thought, you know, now 16 years, you know, the 16 year difference is shorter now. And you're like, oh, that means, oh yeah, gosh. you're like 19 or 20. Um, yeah. I wanted to say about the, why this, I think the love story or what you guys were talking about was so unique in this one and why it's so much more of a connection is, in all the other ones, she doesn't realize she likes him till she can't have him, which mm-hmm. is feels kind of vap- kind of pulling back into that more vapid Emma versus the I'm realizing I love you being with you rather than when like I think somebody else wants you and now I can't have you. Uh, and, and she it, stays it, out of the way in this one because yeah. she thinks you know like there's a bit there where she's like okay Mia Goth's character that I'm blanking on her name Harriet. She's like, okay, Harriet, you like him. I'm going to like take the backseat for a second and see where this goes, you know? There's definitely, it's a different level of tension with that dynamic with the, the person that she loves. And the, her friendship with Harriet is different in this adaptation than I've ever seen. Like mm-hmm. their friendship is beautiful. And, you know, just that scene in the bedroom when they're having like that sleepover and they hug. And then at the end, when she goes and introduces herself and makes it very clear that they are going to all be in each other's lives, no matter station, no matter status. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> friendship. And yeah, you don't get that in any others. It's your yay, Rochelle. It's my yay. And I knew it. It's gorgeous. Well, it's not in the source material at all, you know? So that's just something that Autumn DeWilde, you know, made a very deliberate choice and and looked at the the elements of literature that comes out during this time and seeing what won't work for an audience today. So I really, really appreciated that deviation. She's so cool. It like makes me want to be friends with her. I'm like, you must be fucking awesome. We should be her friend. I appreciate it. I appreciate it because 
Austin was already, you know, so ahead of her time. Like she's created this character that is bucking social norms. Yes, she's privileged. Yes, she has the ability, the the station to financially be supported so that she doesn't have to get married. She's got a father who does not want her to leave. Like Mm -hmm. under any circumstances, (laughs) he's like, stay, you know? And so she's got a very specific living environment and circumstance, but she's a woman who's essentially a matchmaker. She's got her own little profession. She doesn't take money for it, but girl's an entrepreneur and she's not kowtowing to um, as the same types of social pressures that other women have to. So we're already getting this great characterization outside of its time, but expecting her to buck every single element of her station may have been a little bit too much to ask for from Austin when she was already so ahead. Totally. And when we look back at our literature that we think right now is so woke, right? (laughs) You know, we're going to realize all the holes and places where we were really behind. And, and so I think if Jane Austen were here today, she'd be like, hell yeah, this is awesome. I think she would be here for it. It does. Cause I mean, even this film feels a little ahead of its time as far as like the strategic choices in the filmmaking. It was just so obvious a woman helmed this project. But not in a way that makes it exclusive. No, like, no, not at all. Like in in a subtle way, just as a woman, where it's like I think because you because of things we haven't seen or mm-hmm. that haven't been explored yet in filmmaking, that's why they're more obvious. I think, but yeah, not exclusive. Uh, so I think going in, along with the lines of the way in which DeWilde's able to pick up on sort of multiple perspectives. Uh, I think one of the things she also does is picks up on the completeness of being a human. Uh, you know, we talked very in depth about nightly getting dressed. And then you also have, you know, Emma, when she's cold, she like lifts up her skirt so she can fan herself with the fire. And her dad, when he comforts her when she's in the, the balcony, right, her shoes are kind of off and she's a little bit disheveled. And the ways in which there's a there's like not humanity, but like a humanness, like a just a tactile what it is to be a human, particularly in a time 200 years ago where people are kind of gross and people aren't, you know, always put together uh, in the way a movie sometimes makes it seem as if they're put together. And she kind of pulls that out a little bit to to give them to. I think it helps to kind of break the glamour of the upper class, like saying that they are these this this removed sort of. Uh, class that we can't criticize or we can't I mean we can't sort of poke at because they're they're above us but I mean Austin's whole thing was criticizing the upper class <laughs> and I think Dwild picks up on that and uses this these different sort of small moments to show how we are all human and even though Emma has all this money she's still a human and she still hurts and she still aches and she still just wants mainly yeah I feel like a lot of period pieces I think nowadays they go like to the extremes but oftentimes you don't see like any really human elements yeah I mean I can't think of one other than like on the extreme other end where it's like brutal and yeah. really dirty so when I was in Bath uh, we went we toured a house that had, was still set up in the way it was uh, about 200 years ago and we were in the dining room and they just had like a screen that just separating like the corner and the guide was like, what do you think happens behind the screen? And we we're like, I don't know. Is it like where servants stand so they're not seen? Uh, there was a uh, bowl. And that's where oh. people would go over and just like pee or poo or do whatever they needed to oh do uh, in the middle in of the dinner. In the dining room? In the, di- in the same room. You would just get up. You'd go behind the screen. You'd relieve yourself. And you'd go back to dinner. So they were I really mean, gross in this time. 
Oh, that's basically what my bedroom layout is. Like, <laughs> like right off of my bedroom. So like, Don't say anything anymore. It will be offensive to Cassidy. The mystery is completely gone in my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine if you had like had 16 guests. It was. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, Someone would always be on the toilet. And it was just Whoa. like a normal thing. Did the tour guide like expand upon that? They're just like, yeah, many people were just like ripping it. Because <laughs> well, meals it. would last for so many hours. And so people would just get up and you'd go around the curtain and squat and then come back to dinner. How big was this house, Laura? Was it like, <laughs> like it wasn't an Emma hang level on. house, oh, obviously. Hang on. I actually have. This is what it looked like. This is amazing internet. I wish you had eyes to see this with, or our eyes to see this with right now. This is what the dining room looked like. But then in the corner, you can't see. There is, yeah. Like, that's how fancy it is. You need to be talking about this as a mansion because at first I was imagining, like, a portrait of a lady on fire type of kitchen. You know what I mean? Like, Cinderella's basement kitchen kind of thing. No, it's like an upper class thing. This is like a mansion. It's still gross. I know it's is, still gross. I just want to paint the right picture for our listeners. Like, yeah. don't be thinking like a thatched roof cottage sort of situation. <laughs> like Marie Antoinette's a home. gigantic mansion. All levels of humans are gross. <laughs> that's, that's the... We're all equally gross. Yeah. That's... And Autumn DeWilde did did portray that in in ways that still felt pleasing. We didn't have a poo bucket, you know. But... <laughs> That would have been shocking. <laughs> Too much. So considering that this film marks uh, a shift for us in our viewing practices right now, that in tandem with our experience with a really great Emma adaptation has to lead to some pretty interesting takeaways. I know that overall, I'm mostly excited to see Autumn DeWilde's next narrative fiction project. Uh, you know, this will be this was this was Autumn's first fiction narrative feature, uh, and I know that there will be more to come. I don't know if it'll be an adaptation, but obviously, Autumn pulls together great groups of new, pretty new actors to bring us a new vision, and so that's something I'm really looking forward to moving forward. You should. I'm gonna like plug Autumn DeWiles really quick because I feel like gentle listeners you should also go and like watch her music videos and stuff she's just follow her on instagram she's so creative in every aspect of creativity like right now in covid she's like watercolor she's like an amazing watercolor painter too she can just like do it all because she started as photographer um but yeah i would recommend looking into her just as an artist in general because she is just on her game i think for me the takeaway connecting to dewild's creativity is to be open to adaptations that that do take liberties with plot, uh, because books are more than just the narrative. There's so much having to do with theme and mood and the tension and the way in which uh, DeWilde stayed so true to the spirit of the novel, though she really played with the pacing and the, and the structure and the story and the ending, um, but in ways that made it better. Totally. Uh, my takeaway is to be more open to films based on this time period I think I really shy away from this era a lot of the time in period pieces Um, but this film was a beautiful reminder that it can still be fun and um, relevant today this gets me very excited for adaptations 
in general, which is crazy because we live in this time where we're so inundated with adaptations. And so it's refreshing to see one done correctly and in a way that is pushing the story forward and not trapping it in whatever nostalgia that we want to trap it in. Um, so this is just a wonderful example of if you're going to tackle an adaptation, it can be done in a way that is totally original and propels the narrative forward in a way that in, in some ways is better than the original. Say, gentle listeners, did you know our film is an adaptation? You can what? rent it for $20 on Vimeo, just like the men. You can find it at talkingtocrows.com on our homepage. Plug. Say, that's the price of four coffees. Say, $20 is really affordable. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us while we dissected Emma, period, a modern take deeply set in 19th century Austin world. We enjoyed so much, and we hope that you will too. Be safe and stream on. This has been a Quarantine Style Talking to Crows production. 